spot. <laughs> I saw Adrian, you've come, commented on coming out to the Eye of the Tiger. I, don't, I think that's my favorite time I've ever walked up into a, a vulvet. Oh my goodness, it's so good to be with you. My name is Christine Ingebretson. I've been a part of Fremont Community Church in some way since 1973. And so, so it's really good to be with you this morning and to be a part of this incredible series, The Women Who Gave Us Jesus. And it, it struck me as Ruth, our Ruth, stood here this morning. She is giving us Jesus. She continues to give us Jesus and give all the people as she leads this missional community, community through Compassion Network. I mean, how, what a beautiful representative she is of a woman who is literally pointing people to Jesus. And that is the invitation of all the daughters and the sons in the kingdom of Jesus. We get to participate in the beautiful work that he's doing in the world. We get to be there when someone makes a U-turn and says, I see something is happening and I want in on it. And that's the invitation. That's the invitation. Well, this morning, I want to tell you a love story. Only, it's not between people that you might imagine when you think of a love story. Although romantic love is a joy and a gift from God, I want to lean into a love story that God writes for us through the book of Ruth that is primarily between a widowed woman and her widowed mother-in-law. I want to talk to you about a very beautiful and powerful kind of love. Jesus, thank you so much for your presence in this place. And I pray that every single person that's hearing my voice would have an encounter with you, the living Jesus, that you would ravish each of us with your unfailing, relentless, reckless love that we would encounter you, Jesus, and we would be forever changed. We don't come here to play any games. We come here to meet the living God and be transformed in community and extend your love to a watching, waiting, hungry, desperate, broken world. God, so we come expectant that you would have your way in this place. Have your way. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I am so delighted to be diving into this idea of this said love of God. And we're going we're gonna to get there in a second. But I want to start at the beginning here. Is it possible that just when you think that everything has gone the most terribly wrong, that, that actually God is writing a chapter in your story that is beyond anything that you can imagine? The women in this biblical story that we are diving into this morning are on, they put on display this powerful, brutal, beautiful, heart-wrenching redemption of God. Redemption is not needed without pain. You don't need to be redeemed unless there's grief and death and heartache and hopelessness. And all of these things hover in this story and become the birthplace of the most surprisingly beautiful work of God. But it's hard. It's hard. Today when we open up the book of Ruth, we're gonna discover the way God works in what seems like the darkest seasons of our life. And I was thinking on my walk yesterday, I was seeing all the poppies bursting. You've noticed the poppies everywhere? Like the, the spring has sprung 
Everything is bursting with new life, and I feel it in my spirit, but I wonder how this feels. It's, it's beautiful how God's given us seasons, right, that mirror kind of the, the seasons of our lives. And some of us are surrounded by these poppies and this beauty and this spring, but our, our stories feel like they're in winter. And I know some of you come to, to this place this morning, and you're in a winter season of your story. And so what you see outside does not reflect what's going on inside of your story, inside of your heart and your soul. And, and so when we come into this story today, we're looking at, at, at women who find themselves in a winter season where there is no green on the trees, where everything is, seems bare and broken and lost. But as we see time and time again, when things are under the surface, looking like they're buried, looking like it's over, really there is things that are riotlessly, riot, riot below the surface, right? The, the roots are riotous, right? There's things happening. And that's what's happening today in our story. So I'm going to dive right in. I'm just kind of give you the setting of the first few verses of Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah, and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. The story opens up describing an utter disaster in Naomi's life and story. This is absolutely horrific. It's the worst case scenario for a woman in this time in history. In the first five verses, all the men are introduced and they're gone. And the story begins to center around Naomi. Naomi and her boys had left Bethlehem, which ironically means the house of bread. But there was a famine in Bethlehem and they left to go to Moab to find food, to find life. But while Naomi was in Moab, she lost everything, everything. It's easy for us as modern Western readers to breeze over words like famine because we've not known famine. We note that Naomi is without a husband and sons and we think, oh, that's really sad. What a sad story. But remember, as a woman in a patriarchal society, your value as a woman was purely based on the men you were connected to. And you were valued on the sons you could produce. The more sons you produced, the higher your value. Naomi found herself in a situation where everything was gone. Everyone, all hope was lost for her. And she's postmenopausal. So she can't start over. The reality is that Naomi is a female Job. Have you ever thought of it that way? Naomi is a female Job, but somehow Naomi gets kind of written off as this bitter old woman and Job gets to be this amazing hero of the faith. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? I love this quote by uh, Carolyn Custis James. This, this book, The Gospel of Ruth, uh, was a big source of my study this week, and I really highly recommend, recommend reading this. It will 
blow your mind. It's amazing. And I can only touch on some of it today. But she says this, Naomi and Job share a fundamental equality in that they both lost everything, their lives are in ruins, and their souls are drowning in grief. But the biggest distinction between them is the most obvious one. Naomi is a woman and Job is not. Naomi has no chance of starting over. Job can start over. He's a man. He has power. He has influence. He has access. He has, he has ownership of land. He can, he can create more kids. Naomi has none of this. What is not said in the text, but is very much understood and implied, is that on top of everything, both of her daughters-in-law have experienced infertility. Do you see this? After 10 years of marriage, neither one of them have children. So we're talking about barren women, infertile women, in a time and culture that that's literally what defines you. These women are widowed without giving birth to children. This is catastrophic. Three widowed women, two infertile, one postmenopausal. In this culture, this means their usefulness is gone. It's over for them. And so Naomi decides to return to Bethlehem when she hears that the famine's over. She's like, I'm just going to go home. going to go home. And so she and Orpah, not to be confused with Oprah, I, I always want to say the wrong word there. Orpah and Ruth, they start this trek back from Moab. And there's a whole thing about Moab. You guys, like, look up who the Moabites are descended from. It's sorted. The Bible is super exciting and interesting. But I'm not going to go there. Okay. But on their way back, Naomi seeks to release her daughters-in-law to allow them to return to their families of origin because she wants to bless them. There's nothing for foreign Moabitess widow women who are infertile back in Bethlehem. Let me tell you. There is no no man to broker a marriage for them. There is nothing for them there. Zero, nothing. And so Naomi is trying to say, I I release you. I release you. And this is the first mention of one of the the most powerful themes of this book that I've alluded to, and that's the power of love. Um, The power of this word hased. This Hebrew word has said that is very hard to translate into English. If, if I was to ever get a tattoo, Kayla, it would be has said. Yeah, seriously. The, the, the Hebrew, she's going to hold me to it. <laughs> the Hebrew symbol for has said. It is the most beautiful word. Hebrew has a word for a lifelong love that is richer and deeper than English has ever conceived of. Has said, based in a covenantal relationship, has said is steadfast, rock solid faithfulness that endures to inter- eternity. Has said is a love so enduring that it persists beyond any sin or betrayal to mend brokenness and graciously extend forgiveness. Has said is not just a feeling, but an action. It intervenes on behalf of loved ones and comes to their rescue. God is the, is the one who is the ultimate has said giver. And he then uses his people to express his head love, his said love to one another. I love, you know, the Sally Lloyd-Jones, any of you who, who are reading the Jesus Storybook Bible to your kids, it's this never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever kind of love. Whenever I read that, it makes me want to weep. English doesn't have a word that encompasses it. And, and Naomi says in, in verse one, chapter one, verse eight, she says to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show said to you as you have shown to me. 
to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. She's blessing them and releasing. Bless and release. They kissed and they wept and they both offered to stay. I mean, there's drama on this, on this road back to Bethlehem. They were connected. They were trauma bonded. Have you ever been through something with someone that's really hard and devastating? It connects you. They had they were deeply connected. And also, in Hebrew culture, a woman was bound to her husband's family even after death. So they were kind of stuck. But she wants to release them. She's saying, I bless you to go. There's nothing back in Judah for you. There's no husband. There's no children. And she ends the, these words with the, her speech with these words. Ruth 1.13, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. Woo! Do you ever feel like that? The Lord's hand has gone out against me. Like Job says, God has made me his target. His archers surround me. The Almighty who has made me taste bitterness of soul. Then there's more weeping, and Orpah does the sensible thing. She does, she's, she's, she does what, what any girl would do. Returns home. To be a Moabite widow, like I said, never having a child does not bode well. So she gets it, and she goes home. And this is what makes what Ruth does so incredibly powerful and profound and an embodiment of said. She refuses to go. The text says that she clings to Naomi. She clings. This morning when I was trying to get here, um, Isaac didn't want me to go. And he was just clinging onto me, just, just holding my sweater. I'm like, don't stretch my sweater. But he was just clinging on. And it just gave me that picture of Ruth just clinging to Naomi. I am not going anywhere. I'm not going anywhere. And this is this famous passage that is used at weddings between men and women. This was from a widowed daughter-in-law to her mother-in-law. She says, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. Ruth is a woman of determination. She will not be stopped. Her has said for Naomi cannot be stopped. And there is literally nothing in it for her. I can't explain to you how there is nothing in it for her. How this is a completely sacrificial love. And in this loving kindness, again, Ruth embodies the faithful love of God. Ruth lays down her life for her mother-in-law, embodying Christ-like love giving us a glimpse of the way Jesus will love when he comes for his people hundreds of years later. Ruth's relentless, reckless love that clings to Naomi is a picture of the way Jesus recklessly and re relentlessly faithfully loves you. She's a picture of that. In this story of Ruth and Naomi, God puts on display the beautiful truth that Hesed meets us and is coming for us even in the darkest chapters of our story. That with God, resurrection is always in the air. This story points us right to Jesus. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined, she surrenders. And it's more like she resigns, all right. All right, you can come with me. When they get to Bethlehem, people are whispering, is that Naomi? Do you know when someone's been through a lot? Have you ever seen someone after five, ten years, and they've had incredible grief or pain in their lives, and they look like different people 
Her, her, like, her, her friends from childhood, you know, she's coming back home. They don't, is that her? I don't recognize her. And she says in verse 20, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Naomi means pleasant. Mara means bitter. Naomi says, my identity has shifted. Has any of your identity shifted when things in your story have not gone the way that you thought they would? You thought you were this person, and then all hell broke loose, and now you're not that person anymore? That's what she's experiencing. And the beauty of this Hebrew language is like, like just call me who I really am. Just name it. Naomi wrestles with the goodness of God. She names the reality of her fate, and she understands that God holds her story. She, she is in this unspeakable chapter of grief, and she holds him responsible. She boldly names this. This is the mystery of following God. We can't say God's good when all the things are going according to plan, and then say God's bad when all the things are taken away from us that we've ever loved. He is the same. So how do we cling to his goodness in dark times? Naomi shows us that God wants us to be honest with him. We are not supposed to pretend, oh my goodness, we are not supposed to Romans 8, 28 everything to each other, right? All things work together for good, woo, woo. Like, uh, that is truth from Scripture, and that is a beautiful reality, but the way that we use that in the body of Christ is to assault each other in our deepest wounds. And God says, no, 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 no. That is not my heart. I need you to get real honest with me. Here's the thing. So often, when we are not honest with God, we are distant from him. If we are not honest with him about what's really happening in our souls and how angry we are and how it feels like his bitter hand, his hand is bitter against us, if we're not honest about that, then, we can't, then he can't show us something different or reveal a different part of his character. Because if we're running away and just, I don't want to say anything bad, I don't want to say anything bad, then, then the intimacy isn't there. You guys have heard me say this before. Wrestling is the most intimate position you can get in with God. And we talk about that, right? Those guys, how... how the way they look when they're wrestling, it's gross. <laughs> like, I will never forget where I was in seventh grade, and I first saw those, what do you call it, uniforms that those guys wear. And I was like, oh, my goodness. And then they're just all up in each other. Israel means struggle. To walk with God means you will struggle. It does not mean, like, overcoming, woo! It's all beautiful. It's a good day. It's a good day to be alive. Yeah. No, it means, yes, there's days like that. There's days where the poppies make your heart come alive. And there's days where the poppies make you so resentful that anyone is happy because you can't believe how dark your story has gotten. And God is there for all of it. And that's what this story tells us, that God is with us through it all. And that's the gift of the widow all throughout the scriptures. It's the gift of the infertile woman all throughout the scriptures. She embodies the reality that God is for her, even in the dark. That it is God who is the giver of life. We don't decide. He does. 
Notice that Ruth is with Naomi when she says she has nothing. I'm going to feel for Ruth. I've come back empty. Ruth is standing there. I've come back. I was, went away full and I've come back with nothing. There's Ruth. Self-sacrificial. Giving up everything. Doesn't count for anything in Naomi's eyes at that moment. And Ruth's okay with that because she's committed to said, Faithful, never give up, never stopping, unbreakable love. In chapter, Ruth, in chapter two, Ruth gets to work. She tells Naomi, let me go to the field and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone who, in whose favor I have, I have found favor, in whose eyes I have found favor. So what's so beautiful is that God has made provision for women like Ruth and Naomi in the life-giving laws that he gave his people. You know, we look at these, the, the, the laws in scripture. I was reading this week in my time with Jesus. I think it was Psalm 119 and one translation said, you know, I, I, I feast on your life-giving laws. And I thought, yes, everything that you invite us into, God, is life-giving. But the enemy wants to come and steal, kill, and destroy and make us think that the laws of God are actually going to steal the joy of our life. When actually, the laws of God are life-giving. If you follow and obey what Jesus has invited you to live into, that is the path you want to be on. Let me tell you, it is life-giving to walk with Jesus life-giving. So one of his life-giving laws is in Deuteronomy 24, 19. When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. So in other words, if you're like harvesting and you drop a sheaf, you, you don't, don't go back and get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. Some people refer to this as like the, the ancient welfare system, but it gave so much dignity as well because people would have to come and actually glean and do the work of providing for their family. But you were told to not, if you were a landowner, if you were a, the owner of, if you have access like this, you were told to let things, let things drop so that those who were less fortunate, the vulnerable, would be provided for. And so that's why Ruth is going to a field. She's going, and she's going to get the leftovers. Chapter 2 introduces Boaz, a man of valor, the text says. He's successful. He has respect of the village. He has privilege within the community. There's a stark contrast between Boaz's resume and Naomi's resume. The fullness of Boaz and the counterpart of the emptiness of Naomi. And we behold the wonder of a man who uses his privilege to fight for the most vulnerable. The root word, um, Hebrew word widow, it's translated widow, the root of it is no voice. No voice. Will the ones with voice give voice to those without? Boaz had a voice. He had power, privilege. How was he going to use it for those without voice? This is the way of Yahweh, God, from the very beginning, and that's the way of his people, that those with privilege and voice would speak up for those without privilege and without voice. How are you using your voice and your privilege to someone who is less fortunate than you are? How are, how are you leaving sheafs for the immigrant, the fatherless, the widow, 
Boaz uses his power to ensure that Ruth is protected. He tells his men to keep his hands off of her. He was very vulnerable for a girl to go and collect at a field. She was very vulnerable in unspeakable ways. And Boaz said, make sure she's okay. When Ruth expresses her gratitude and asks him why she's found favor, he speaks to her reputation. She's impressive, she's gritty, she's strong, she's hardworking, and she's incredibly kind. As women, we can embody all of those things. We can take initiative and we can lead with strength and determination. We can fight with our whole hearts for whatever it is that we believe in. And we can do it with humility and warmth and kindness, as can our brothers, side by side, in what James calls the blessed alliance between men and women who together bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. We are better together. And the answer to Ruth's question, like, why are you, why are you showing me so much favor? He says in verse 11, chapter 2, I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. She has given her life to Yahweh. Remember, she said in chapter one, your God is my God. She's leaving her gods of Moab behind. Yahweh is my God, she says to Naomi. And Boaz confirms this. He sees it's, it's really cool because word has gotten out about R- Ruth and her incredible has said for Naomi. I love this because Boaz becomes the answer to his prayer. Do you see this? He prays that the Lord would repay her, that the Lord would reward her, provide for her. And then what does he do? He becomes the answer to his prayers. Chapter 2, verse 14. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. This is abundant provision. Naomi's words are still hanging in the air. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. When we see this abundance starting to bubble up, Boaz is inspired and he's moved by the way that Ruth has loved Naomi. And he tells his men to pull some bundles and leave them out for her to glean. So it's not just to to not pick up the ones you accidentally dropped. He's saying, pull some out and make sure she gets some. He is going well beyond the, the letter of the law. The letter of the law just says, oh, just leave what you just can't get to. The spirit of the law says, provide for the widow and the orphan and the immigrant. And he wants to meet the spirit of the law. So he drops extra for her that she and Naomi might be provided for. There is nothing about him being romantically or sexually attracted to Ruth. He is drawn to her said for Naomi. He has been invited by this foreign, widowed, barren woman. He is inspired by the way that she loves and it makes him want to love better. That just blows my mind. Boaz embodies this invitation for us to share. If you have, if you have anything, the invitation is to extend and share with other people. Have you ever been around the unsheltered community? how 
how much they share with one another. If they have anything extra, they give to the one in need. There's no hoarding. Obviously, there's hoarding. But I mean, in general, you see this posture of sharing in that community. Because they know what it feels like to be in need. At the end of her day, Ruth returns overflowing with food. It says an effa, which is like 10 days worth of food. <laughs> Naomi is like flabbergasted. She's like, whoa, that's not what I was expecting when you left for the day. She didn't know. She didn't know where she, she just knows she went to a field. Where did you glean, Naomi says, because obviously you, someone, you found favor. This is when Naomi discovers that Ruth had been in the field of Boaz, who just happens to be a family member. Here is where it seems that Naomi begins to become aware that God has not abandoned her after all. Again, it's the faithful love of Ruth embodying the faithful love of God. And that's the pathway that Naomi rediscovers that God is with her. This is the second reference to said here in this, in this book of Ruth. Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, chapter 2, verse 20, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness, has said, has not forsaken the living or the dead. Do you see how you could just breeze by kindness? Kindness. This is so much more than kindness, has said. Although kindness is pretty powerful, is it not? I remember one time I asked Doug, what's the most important thing you need from me? And he said, your kindness. Kindness is powerful. It's very specific. It's like you, you don't really think of kindness without an action or a posture. You can love, I mean, love. People are like DMing on Instagram for 24 hours and saying, I love you. But showing kindness. I love this. So again, may he be blessed by the Lord. She's blessing Boaz, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. I'll tell you a little bit more about that as we, as we um, develop. The plot thickens is basically, this is like, wah, 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 wah. he's one of our redeemers. This is crazy. Okay, what's a redeemer? We'll say in a second. Chapter three opens with Naomi wanting to take care of Ruth. This is, this is where you see kind of them out loving each other. Naomi knows that it's over for her. She can't marry and have sons. No one's going to want to marry her because she can't produce sons. So that's finished. Um, but she, and she knows she, she'll die. But Ruth is a young, still a young woman. And Naomi wants to make sure she's protected. So she says, my daughter, I must find a home for you where you'll be provided for. Um, this is where these women take gutsy to another level. I mean, when you think about the stories of the Old Testament and New Testament, and you look at women, women behaving badly is basically that, but they're, they're, God delights in it. You, you, have you seen that quote, well-behaved women rarely make history? That is all, oh, Esther defying, like Adrian talked about last week, defying the, the king and going when she's not supposed to. Jesus delighted in all of these women who would come to him, the bleeding woman who left her seclusion. And 12 years, you're not, supposed to, you're not supposed to be around people when you're bleeding. She goes into the crowds, touches Jesus, and not only does he heal her, but he delights in her, has a story with, hears her story, calls her daughter. Well-behaved women rarely make history. 
You've got the woman who is a sinful woman and she crashes the bougie party that Jesus is at with the religious leaders. She shows up with this bottle of perfume and breaks it on. She's so overwhelmed with his kindness and his forgiveness for her as a, as a woman who's spent her life in areas where she shouldn't have been and she's forgiven by Jesus and she shows up at this party and all of the people are like, oh, does he have any idea who's touching him? And he's like, oh no, this is it. What she's doing for me, she's anointing me. I came in here and no one else washed my feet. No one else nurtured me, but she has not stopped loving me and nurturing me and anointing me. She completely broke all the rules. And we are talking about her today, 2,000 years later. This is what is going on here with Ruth and Naomi. And when I say breaking the rules, I'm not talking about breaking kingdom rules. I'm talking about breaking worldly rules and customs that do not serve the kingdom work that God has for us. Whew. Let's get off script, sisters. Let's get off script and go into places that are not safe with this has said. Mm. So, this gutsy, gutsy plan. She wants to ensure provision for Ruth. This is the part of the story that often is known about when you hear about the book of Ruth, which it's like, oh, a love story between Boaz and Ruth and the threshing floor. It, it's actually not. This, this is a very... It's, it, this, this story, actually, in chapter 3, is, is full of sexual innuendo. There's tons of, of tones here that refer to, uh, basically, Naomi was sending her to the threshing floor to marry Boaz, to be like, here we are, let's marry each other right now. And she expected Ruth to come home married to Boaz. But that's not what happens. Here's what's crazy. The, Naomi's trying to provide for Ruth, but Ruth is trying to provide for Naomi. They had no idea that their plan eventually leads to the birth of the greatest king of Israel, the greatest king, King David. They had no idea that, that Ruth would become his great-grandmother. They had no idea that from this line would come our Messiah, King Jesus. What? Rarely do we know that we are making history when we are making it. We don't realize we're making history when we're making it. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Okay, so Naomi instructs Ruth to basically go ask Boaz to marry her. Naomi knew that Boaz was a good man. We know he's a man of valor, a man of character. He would be able to marry and provide for Ruth. Now, it, it's, it's really important that we understand that in this culture, we can assume that Boaz has already had other wives and other sons. He would not be a man of respect. He would not have, be a man of this kind of privilege without having sons already. He's not like this bachelor, like a dreamy bachelor. No. He is a man who has had the goodness of God, and that means wives and sons. That's just the way it was in this culture, right? God works in our culture. So here's what's crazy. Um, Naomi instructs Ruth to go bathe, per per perfume on, and basically take off her widow's garb. Go put a cute outfit on, right? <laughs> and go to the threshing floor where Boaz will be celebrating the harvest, and he'll be happy, and he'll have you know, had some wine and some food, and you can go and, and uh, you know, get a marriage proposal. But as we've seen, God puts these laws in place to protect vulnerable women, right? There's two laws. Here's what's crazy. The kinsman redeemer law. Have you heard this law? Okay, stay with me. This is not boring. This is super interesting. Kinsman redeemer law. Okay, this law says that the closest relative of someone who died 
would be able to buy back or take the land of the person who died, right? So, so that's one law. The other law is called the Leverate Law, and that is one that says if a man dies, his brother had to marry his wife and then have heirs so that his name would, would live on. These are both very self-sacrificial moves because if you are a man and you married the brother, that, the, the child that you have with his wife is considered to be his child. Does that make sense? So it's a very selfless act to do these laws, the kinsman redeemer law and the, the, the liverite law. Okay, here's the thing. Boaz was not a brother. So this law did not apply to him. He did not have to marry. He, there was nothing about this that made him have to marry her. This is what's crazy. Naomi doesn't say anything about pulling these laws. She says nothing about it. All she tells her to do is go see Ruth. But Ruth takes it to another level because she's watching out for Naomi. She's, and so she says, spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a kinsman redeemer. She's invoking this marriage proposal asking him to redeem the land and basically to take care of Naomi and also to, to practice the liberate law, which is to marry her. I know that's a lot of information, but you, it's just so powerful because this is not what Naomi was intending. It was Ruth coming in, fighting for, for the love of Naomi. And Boaz is so struck by this. Look at verse, chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. The said that you show is greater than that what you showed earlier. You have not run after younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. This is what he's drawn to again and again in Ruth. She inspires. He's like, oh, yeah, let's take care of Naomi together. Let's do this. Let's redeem her land and make sure she has an heir. Let's do this. What's happening is Ruth is initiating and Boaz, this powerful man, is responding. That is what's powerful about this story. It's so clear. Together, Boaz and Ruth work to care for Naomi and the name of her dead husband and, her, and sons. Ashet Chayel is the Hebrew phrase that Boaz uses to describe Ruth. It means woman of valor. It's the same word that you, you see in Proverbs 31. A woman of valor, who can find her? She's worth far more than rubies. A woman of valor. This is not a precious little, oh, submissive. Now, we need to submit to one another, absolutely, out of reverence for Christ. But when we look at submission as being this thing where it's always about, oh, you make the final decision, or um, I'm never going to speak up. No, submission is a posture that we have where we submit to Christ and to one another in humility, consider others better than ourselves. That we are invited to be women of valiant valor to step in and lead with this has said love. And Boaz, by the way, was raised by a woman of valor. His mother was Rahab. His mother was Rahab who made a way for the spies to get into Canaan. It's good for our boys and our, our girls to see their, their mamas moving in strength and determination and love and humility and kindness. This is not, this is not about making, this is about elevating both men and women as together we are on mission. It's not about smothering either one. The world is telling women to be beautiful and young and skinny and flawless and small. We're told to shrink. And 
religious people might tell you to be perfect or without history or with no sin or to be quiet. But Jesus invites you to walk with him, to surrender your broken story to him, to become a woman of noble character who follows the life-giving laws of God, who embodies, has said, lives with courage, lives with courage in the life that you've been given. Ruth gets up one morning and just goes to work and look what God does. Chapter four is so rich with all kinds of nuggets of goodness and sacrificial love that we don't even have time to explore today, but it's beyond imagination what's happening here. And Boaz makes provision to marry Ruth and take responsibility for her land to provide for Naomi and her husband and his heritage. Ruth 4, 13 to 17, we're winding it up. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he had relations with her and the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today and may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you the one who restores life and sustains your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you is better to you than seven sons. She's given birth to him. What a compliment. Better than seven sons? Like the perfect amount of sons? It's better than that. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. And the neighbor woman gave him a name, saying, a son has been born to Naomi. So they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Many scholars believe that Ruth basically acted as a surrogate for Naomi that she gave birth to this baby and gave it to Naomi to raise. But we know that this is a communal culture, so they raised this baby together, right? This baby, Obed, who became the grandfather of David, raised by these powerhouse women. I love this quote. From the mother who gave him birth, Obed will inherit a caliber of faith in Yahweh that doesn't easily give up. No matter how daunting the obstacles, no matter how impassable the odds, the courageous blood of a risk taker runs through his veins. With a mother like that, it shouldn't surprise anyone to hear of Obed's grandson standing up to a warrior and only with a sling and five small stones. It was Ruth Great's grandson who fought Goliath. The gutsiness and her blood running through his Last week, Adrian pointed out that one of the things we learned through the life of Esther is that even when God is silent, he is still at work. Similarly, from the life of Naomi and Ruth, we see that God is with you in the darkest part of your story and that he can work his good even when things have fallen apart. Ultimately, this is the line that led to our Jesus. This story, just these small acts of faithful love led to our Savior. Hased changes the direct trajectory of a story. We are invited to receive this Hased love of God and then to offer that same Hased to others, to the people he's put in our lives. This is the way that we change the world, one act of Hased at a time. It's my husband on his way to spending time alone with God, stopping because he sees a man with shriveled hands who can't provide for himself. And instead of going off to the quiet place and spending time alone with Jesus, he spends an hour loving someone who most people drive on by, giving him a meal, touching his hands, praying over him, has said in action, has said every day, again and again and again and again, and it's hard, and sometimes you get nothing in return, but God is doing things that you cannot even imagine. 
under the surface and behind the scenes. No matter who you are or what your marital status is, your parental status is, your life is a love story. It is. It may look and feel different than you imagined, but it is very much a love story. So live into the love of God. Receiving his has said love, love, his never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever kind of love. Receive it and extend it and watch for resurrection because resurrection will come in you and through you because the power of the Holy Spirit indwells your life. Jesus, we thank you so much for Ruth and Naomi and what they show us of who you are, Jesus. Thank you that Ruth literally embodies your reckless, relentless love that will fight for us, that will knock down doors, that will climb up mountains, that will continue to cling to us and and come pursuing us even when we keep returning to the vomit of our sin again and again and again. Jesus, you're right there with us chasing after us, clinging to us. And so God, I pray that we would encounter your chesed today in a special way, in just a deeper way, that you would give us a fresh revelation of chesed, and that from that fresh revelation, you would give us the strength to express that to the people that you've put in our lives, God. Would we embody your chesed to the people that we, that we meet along the way, to the people that we live with, the people that we work with, the people that we serve alongside, the people that serve us. Would we embody your said that the world would know you, Jesus, that the world would come to know you, surrender to you, and follow your life-giving ways, God. We love you and we thank you for what these women teach us and how they point us to you. May we be women and men who submit to one another out of reverence for you, Jesus. May we together bring your kingdom of heaven to earth side by side until you come back to get us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen.